welcome to the Polygamer Podcast, where gaming is for everyone. Join us as we expand the boundaries of the gaming community. Hello and welcome to the Polygamer Podcast, episode number 95 for Wednesday, November 13th, 2019. I'm your host, Ken Gagney. Recently, Boston was home to an amazing tour by a wonderful band whom I have backed on Kickstarter and was so delighted to finally see perform in Boston, that being the PDX Broadsides. This dynamic trio was touring the country, especially the East Coast, their first East Coast tour, and I was so enamored with their performance, I just had to hear more from them. So joining me on today's show is one of those three musicians, OBGYN postdoc and nerdy musician with the PDX Broadsides, Dr. Jessica Hebert. Hello, Jessica. Hi, Ken. Hello, Polygamer folks. It's nice to be here. It's so nice to have you here. Thank you for giving me your time. I know that having just gone on this amazing East Coast tour, you're probably looking for some downtime to recover and just recenter yourself. The life of a nerdy musician is uh, not one that is full of rest, but I'm really glad to be able to talk to you and it'll help me sort of process where I've been for the last month too. So I'm excited to do that. Great. I'm excited too. So for those of our listeners who unfortunately may not have had the opportunity to hear about the PDX Broadsides, how would you describe this music band to them? I guess I would call us a nerdy pop folk trio. Uh, we have piano and guitar and really clever uh, lyrics and tight harmonies. And the tight harmonies are kind of what we're, we're known for. Um, we write about things from science to space to Star Trek to Starbucks to things that don't start with S at all. We sing about the things that we love, and those are the things that a lot of nerd friends of ours love too. So that's that's kind of what we do. Uh, we are best known uh, for we have been nominated twice for the Pegasus Award for excellence in folk music, and those nominations were for the songs uh, "The Girl Who Couldn't Even" and Nathan Fillion, "Please Take Off Your Pants." My goodness. And how is it that you three came to be in the first place? Where did you intersect? <laughs> uh, well, it all starts with Holly and I getting drunk in a shed, as all good things happen. We were, at that time, uh, pirates. And uh, I still am. We were performing pirates here in Portland with a group called PDXR. And uh Holly and I were, we had had this really long gig that day and we were sitting in this shed in her backyard that was sort of a communal congregation place drinking wine with our friend Brandy. And uh, Holly said, I found these really dirty, girly shanties and I thought it would be fun if we tried to sing them. And one was uh, Roll Your Leg Over and the other was Roll Me Over in the Clover. And these are old traditional shanty, dirty standards. And we were singing them and thought that they were really delightful. And uh, we performed them in front of our crew about a week later. And they said, that's really good. We're going to be on a podcast like tonight. You should sing them there. So we did. And that podcast, Geek in the City, where we've appeared many, many times since, called us, the, those were the PDX broadsides because we were three girls singing dirty things. And it was kind of funny. 
Brandy decided to leave about a year later because we never set out to start a band. We just started getting really popular. And um, our friend Christian, who played guitar, said, hey, I guess I could try to come play with you guys. And that was seven years ago. So we've been a band for just over eight years, though Christian will tell you that we've really only been a band for seven because that's when he joined. And uh, we've been making weird, nerdy music ever since. I didn't realize that you are a former pirate it seems like all the coolest people in my lives have at some point been pirates yeah uh, i guess i'm i'm also a current pirate i'm the captain of pdxr which you can find at pdxr.org and on facebook and twitter and we perform up and down the west coast doing shanties and fights and fire dancing and big old cannons uh for fun so that's kind of still part of our history and we'll still teach you about sea shanties and and stuff uh but holly and christian are no longer practicing pirates how would you say you divide your time is it mostly pdxr or pdx broadsides what's the what's the division i guess my division is uh science first (laughs) and then everything else uh I, i made a commitment to myself and to my family when i started grad school actually that it was going to be science and family first and then everything else so i guess it, it ebbs and it flows. Summer tends to be a little bit more busy for piracy, but sometimes the band needs more effort. Um, I guess I tend to spend a lot more time on on band stuff when we're touring and actively writing. But yeah, science first. Everything else is is the wonderful filler material in my life. And when you say piracy, you're not talking about torrenting cable shows or stealing software. I promise nothing. <laughs> I love it. You mentioned some of the songs that you have performed, including Nathan Fillion, Starbucks, Star Trek, etc. What is your songwriting process like? Like, who starts with the idea and who contributes what? I would say 90% of our songwriting model is one of us writes some lyrics that we think are good, and then we bring it to the table, and uh, then we make the music together. Sometimes one of us will get an idea, like uh, I'll write some lyrics and a basic chord progression. I'll take that to the table and we'll we'll work on it together. But that's usually how it works out. Um, Holly doesn't uh, doesn't play an instrument, and so she most often will write something and say, like, I kind of wanted it to sound happy, and then we work on it until we figure it out. So it's kind of collaborative. Um, the other ten percent of the time. We'll have like a Google Doc open. Someone says, I had this kind of rough idea. Could you help me flesh it out? And then we work on it very, very collaboratively then. So it it depends. Some depends on what it is that we're trying to get at. Do any of you have assigned roles in the band, such as instruments or singing or et cetera? Uh, We all sing and I play keys. In fact, uh, during our first Kickstarter for our fourth album, Trust Issues, the one of the stretch goals was for a new stage professional keyboard for me. So I have a Casio PX5S whose name is Dr. Rosalind Franklin after the true discoverer of the structure nature of DNA. And uh, Rosalind often tours with us. Though if you saw us on the East Coast tour, you saw me with a smaller setup and that keyboard's name is Mod because it's an M audio. Uh, so Mod. Uh, Christian plays guitar and uh, we all make weird mouth noises at each other. So I guess that's that. Uh, Holly will say that she's the band's 
editor. So when we come up with Christian and I will often like spin ideas between the the two of us. And if you know the um the wild, the weaver and the worm uh from mythology, uh, Christian's kind of the wild. He spins all these um he has all these ideas that come out of him. Uh and I'm the weaver and I try to set them in place and keep them. And Holly is the worm. She is uh she edits them out of existence if they're really, really bad. This all sounds extremely arcane and magical uh, i guess it's songwriting is magical and i a lot of our our songs come from a pretty deep place within us like sometimes they're a little bit more surface level but especially trust issues and relatable content our last two albums we started to get into the things that scare us and fears and writing about them still through a really nerdy lens but I mean, those are the songs that are really resonating with our fans right now and with us as we enter a stage in our world that's kind of scary and new. Can you give me some examples of some of those songs? Sure. Um, one of them is Orpheus that I wrote for the new album. Um, and Orpheus is part of a three-song set. Uh, the first song was called Fight or Flight, and then Orpheus, and then Lost at Sea. And it's all, um, the songs sort of follow a cycle of um, abuse and fear. And Orpheus really focuses on um, the anger part of leaving when you freeze in place, but you are so angry and you are locked into a situation you can't get out of because uh, he is so charming and he is so witty and everybody loves him. Um, so it takes a lot of inspiration from the Me Too movement uh, as well. So that's uh, one example. Uh, Holly wrote a song called The Alligators, uh, which is about the little things that are in our brains that eat away at our confidence and um, our belief in ourselves because they tell us that we can't do a thing. And so we hold ourselves back. So uh, and Christian, I got to mention one from each of us. Uh, Christian wrote a song called Serotonin Dopamine, which is also on the new album about the neurotransmitters we miss when they're gone. And it's a, a song about like, you know, if if you've got those drugs, that's how I'm, I'm going to feel a little bit better. So we're embracing mental health um, and the sort of social justice movement and uh, also confidence. Those are things that really resonate with us. And I think a lot of our fans are feeling that same way. What would you say is your goal with these more challenging songs? Is it self-therapy? Is it entertainment? <laughs> is it education? Uh, all of the above. Um, I think that all good entertainment has something in it that you can learn from. So edutainment. And I feel like this is yeah, these songs are processing. Um, if it wasn't something that was coming out of us, where would it be coming from? So yeah, all of the above. We write about the things that we understand and we all have struggles with, uh, all three of us have struggles with mental health. And so that's a, a thing that we're pro we use our music to help us process that too. And some days are hard and people do come and talk to us about how um, like jerk brain meant so much to them because they were like, oh, it's okay when my brain isn't very kind to me. I'm like, yeah. And it's become shorthand for a lot of our fans to express when things aren't going well in their brains. They're like, I'm having jerk brain. Like, hell yeah, you're having jerk brain. And it's okay to have jerk brain. So 
I'm having some jerk brain right now, but it is nice to know that I'm not alone and that other people feel that too. And what is it that you think your fans get out of this? Some people want to go to a concert and just turn off their heads and be entertained. And when they hear songs that might be challenging to them or something that, you know, as you mentioned, these are things that you are addressing head on because you fear them. Is that something that you find your audience appreciates? I think so. Um, we do get sometimes people cry uh, during a performance and sometimes by people, I mean me. Uh, <laughs> there are still songs that get at my heart when we're performing them. Um, and sometimes uh, audience members will come up and say like that song really meant a lot to me because I haven't heard someone talk about um, mental health in that way. And maybe some of our material is a little bit triggering, but I hope that by listening to it. I hope it's not triggering. Um, I'll take that back. Some of our material might be a little bit more um, difficult to engage with because it's not just about like, here's a song about Pokemon. Let me tell you about all the different Pokemon. Like this is, sometimes you have to actually write from the heart and that's where we're coming from these days. And I imagine that this is all part of the larger movement to destigmatize these topics by talking about them. The same reason why we have organizations like Take This and Post Secret is because so much of this stuff is hidden and your audience will hear this and realize they're not alone. I feel I love Post Secret. I think it's so devastatingly real. And that's part of what we want to encourage other people to do is be vulnerable, be open with who you are and where you're coming from and your feelings and the people who love you are going to to see that. Um, it's hard to live out loud in a world that wants you to be quiet, especially when you are presenting as something other than uh, cis and white and male. Um, that can be really challenging. And we want everyone who hears our music to feel like they can be expressive through that music. So even when the songs are challenging, you're still creating a safe space. I hope so. Uh, it's a way to experience it in four minutes or, you know, longer. Heartless, I'm looking at you. And hopefully by the end of that, you feel like you've been on a bit of a journey through that emotional state and realize like, it's okay. It's okay to have feelings. It's okay to feel sad. It's okay to feel angry or uh, afraid because we do too when we're with you in the trenches. And that is really hard, not only because we have toxic masculinity, which tells you it's not okay to feel those things, but also because being emotional, to, regardless of who or what you are, is a vulnerability. Yeah. Uh, being, like I said, living out loud in, in a world that wants you to be quiet is really hard. You have to keep challenging yourself and challenging the beliefs of other people if you want to be your truest self. So to counter that, I know that you have not all your songs are on those topics. What are some of your other songs that you enjoy? You mentioned Nathan Fillion, etc. But do you have any particular favorites or are there any particular fan favorites? Fan favorites. Um <sighs> Best in Life is a song that Christian wrote that is uh, a what if, that's how a lot of our songs actually start, is what if we express this thing? What if Conan the Barbarian wrote an advice column? 
and uh, fans really love it. It's got a fun and bouncy chorus to it. And so people want to sing along doodly doo to do. And that's that's the best. Pretty much any song that the audience is singing back to us is great because you get this sort of community all in feeling. Um, I love Nathan Fillion, Please Take Off Your Pants, uh, because I wrote it while driving home from our last recording session for Aim to Misbehave, and I was stuck in traffic, and I was so angry. I just wanted to go home, and this song comes bubbling up out of me. And I sang it very, very loudly in my car to this uh, recording app on my phone, and I got home and sent it to Christian Holly. I'm like, hey, hey, guys, hey, I wrote a song on the way home. And they were very mad at me because we just <laughs> finished recording the last album. Uh, and it's, it is a sing along and uh, everybody gets into it. It is a, a polite plea to Mr. Fillion, who has allegedly heard the song um, and has not asked us to cease and desist. So I'm, I'm very, I'm very grateful. Thanks, Mr. Fillion, if you're listening to this. On what authority do you have it that he heard your song? He was gifted a, a USB with our music at Emerald City Comic Con a couple of years ago. And I took a picture with him and um, he he smells like hopes and dreams. He's he's so soft. He's wonderful. Uh, and he looks at me and he says, I, I admire your hustle. And I said, oh, uh, th- th- thanks. And he only tweeted one thing the entire time he was at Emerald City Comic Con, and it was the picture of us together. So I'm taking that as a subtle nod of like, I recognize what you're doing. Please be cool. So <laughs> I'm just going to be cool about it. That is quite the honor. Wow. I mean, to come that close to perfection. Yeah. Oh, he's, he's so soft. Hopes and dreams. He's, he's, oh, he's so pretty. Through the associative property, would I get any of that if I were near you? Oh yeah, the uh the like the proximity to the Kevin Bacon uh rule. Yeah, you are uh 1 degree away from Fillion. Oh. oh. <laughs> the, the quality of my life has increased. Thank you, Jessica. You're welcome. I am so glad that I can provide associative content. <laughs> Not just relatable, but also associative. I love it. So you mentioned that you have a song about Settlers of Catan. Do you have any, whether or not you've written songs about them, what are some of your favorite board games? Ooh. Oh, that is a very, <laughs> that is a tremendously huge question. What is my favorite uh, board game right now? I, I love Settlers always and forever because yelling wood for sheep is never, ever going to get old in my household no, or my life. Um, we have played a lot of Splendor uh, recently, which I like. The Pack of Gum games, they're uh, so named because they are about the size of a pack of gum. Um, and I love carrying them in my purse. And so if you're sitting at a bar and uh, you're having drinks with friends, you can pull one of these out. And it's a usually a game for two to four players, like bus, where you pretend to be a bus driver or shh, which is great for beer festivals because you can't talk while you collaboratively build words. So when it's really noisy. Uh, so I love those. Um, what else are we playing right now? I can't, uh, we've been playing a lot of D and D, so that's pretty much <laughs> anytime I have time for gaming, we're playing D and D right now. Uh, fifth ed and it's 
rad. I've really enjoyed that. Are you a pirate there as well? No, no, I'm playing a tabaxi bard, which is just as bad. Okay, I'm a little behind on my d and I know what a bard is. What's a tabaxi? I'm a cat person. <laughs> oh, should have known, of course. It was the uh, first time I have ever played like a, a fuzzy species, and it's been kind of interesting. Um, but yeah, I, I said, you know what? I think I'd like to play a bard. Surprising no one. But what did surprise people is that I'm writing in-world actual songs about our adventures. And uh, that's been pretty fun. I'm putting them together and maybe eventually they'll be, that'll have to be an album of some nature. I would absolutely purchase that EP. <laughs> Do it now. <laughs> there would all be like inside jokes about that time that uh, that guy set himself on fire in the middle of the pub trying to avoid the troll. I'm not sure that anyone will want that except me. So it'll have a very limited audience, but it'll be worthwhile to create. I Everything that, even if it's not good, we've written songs that are not you know, for public consumption, it's still part of the creative process to write things, even if they aren't necessarily things that you want to put out there. Well, you have to be your own first audience. Yeah. Well, and Holly is our editor, so we'll write songs sometimes that she'll go, nope, that's never going anywhere. Sometimes Christian <laughs> and I will start, still try to slip something in if we both really like it, but chances are very good that if Holly doesn't like it, one of the other of us goes, yeah, that's probably a good idea to not sing out loud to people. So Holly is the voice of reason among you? I wouldn't say that. I <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think she's perhaps the most uh, conservatively minded of the three of us in terms of uh, public image. Hmm. I'm glad you qualify that because conservative has a very different meaning these days. It does. And um, none of the three of us identify as conservative <laughs> in, in that particular parlance uh, because it, it's not uh, – it is – it does not mesh with our worldviews of how people should be treated and um, how people should be equal and able to express themselves. Shocking nobody. Right? <laughs> Are there songs you've written that were too nerdy for the PDS broadsides? I mean, perhaps they weren't funny enough or they were too inside a joke, but you're like – Guys, this is just beyond the pale. We have sometimes what we call the two percenter songs, where two percent of the audience is going to get a song, but that two percent is really going to love it. So they're on the fence sometimes. We did one, we had performed it out a couple of times, and we keep debating whether it'll see the light of day again. It's called Lorm Ipsum. And uh, it's Lorem Ipsum is the boilerplate text that you use to fill space before you actually fill it with an actual thing. So like if you go to a website and they have forgotten to change one of their pages, it's usually filled with Lorem Ipsum. It's a randomized Latin that isn't real Latin. So we wrote a song about how we meant to finish this song and here comes our big chorus and it's all Lorem Ipsum. Right. 2%. Like nobody, nobody thinks it's funny except like librarians and web designers. And they're like, oh, I get what you did. And everyone else is like, what the hell are they doing? Are they speaking <laughs> tongues? I appreciate it. I mean, the only thing that could possibly be funnier, but I'd have to see it to be sure, is if you replace it with Riker Ipsum. <gasps> oh, no. Okay. Well, that's going on the list. <laughs> we, we, we'll look into it. We'll take it under advisement. I don't know. Like most of the, the time, if we have a song that 
someone thinks is too nerdy, then we definitely need to put it out there. We did a, a song for a long time that Christian didn't think was funny. And he's like, why do people keep laughing? Like, cause it's hysterical. Uh, it's called Delta U Delta me about a breakup through physics and mathematics. And uh, it's, it's so cleverly done. And people who aren't, aren't like physics and math super nerds still get like, Oh, it's about a breakup, but uh, we sang it for a bunch of scientists at Dragon Con and just watched them lose it. So, I mean, just the the niche nerds need us too. So we'll never release, not release something because it's too nerdy. We probably just won't release something because it it might not be relevant anymore. Like I wrote a song about the fiscal cliff and it's sort of about the fiscal cliff. It's about a guy named fiscal cliff. Who's very mad at CNN for saying his name over and over again. And Holly was like, no, you, we can't do that. Nobody's going to get that. And she might be right. But every now and again, I perform it at Filk circle because filkers will always get a joke like that. And for those who haven't heard that phrase, what is Filk? Filk is like, imagine nerdy music, but the community around that. So it is a, uh, it was originally a misspelling of the word folk, um, started back in the, uh, late sixties, early seventies. And it's these folks who have been going to like nerdy conventions and things, and they form their own track to sing, um, all sorts of songs. Like sometimes the songs are very serious, but usually um, there's a lot of parodies and it is Filk is the name of the community and they're super fun. So if you see a Filk track at any con you're at, um, their music, they're going to be nerds and they are your people and you should go check them out. I discovered Filk sort of tangentially. There is a musician named Frank Hayes. He wrote the song Never Set the Cat on Fire. Yes. I love Frank. He's great. You love his work or you know him personally? Both. Uh, Frank comes to Oricon um, every year and uh, his song, uh, When I Was a Boy, is very, uh, very popular. And he he has what we have termed Frank Hayes disease. Um, he'll get up on stage and he forgets his lyrics. And if anybody else forgets their lyrics during a set, they yell out, Frank Hayes. Uh, it's, it's like a whole thing, but he's, he's wonderful. He's very welcoming. <laughs> I, I wish I knew that side of him better. If you were to look on his Wikipedia page, it's dedicated partly to his work in the Filk community and partly to his work as an IT columnist for Computer World magazine. What? Which I used to be an editor at, and that's how I know him as we were coworkers. Holy crap. That's so... <laughs> This is a very small world. Uh, you will have to come visit for Oricon because Frank is here every year and uh, his concerts are always hilarious uh, because the music is really good. But also it's Frank up there just being Frank. And <laughs> like it, it means that there's going to be shenanigans. I love shenanigans. I love Frank shenanigans. I will definitely come to Oricon. I am a digital nomad, so I am going to be in Portland probably this time next year. Oh, uh, well, funnily enough, Oricon is uh, is coming up. It's the uh, well. By the time your your audience hears this, it'll be last weekend. Uh, for us, it's this weekend. Oh, so that would be the weekend of November eighth, ninth, and tenth. That's correct. Ah, darn these lead times on podcasts. <laughs> but next year, uh, next year, you if you hear about that that time, 
come check out Oricon. I will. So that's when I'll be on the West Coast. You yourself, however, were just on the East Coast. Yes. With your first East Coast tour. Congratulations. How did it go? It was great. <laughs> we had such a fun time. So we started in Raleigh, North Carolina, and then worked our way up the coast until we hit Boston. Uh, when we arrived in Raleigh, uh, the day we left Portland, it was 45 degrees and rainy. And we get into Raleigh and it is 97 degrees and 53% humidity. <laughs> oh, no. And went, well, fall hasn't quite arrived here, has it? And we uh, stayed with our friend Juliana Finch, who is also a musician down um, in, in the Raleigh area. And she's bluesy, sultry, wonderful. And we got to play with her while we were there. And um, she said the next day, oh, this is the coolest day we've had in a long time. You're bringing fall with you. And as we drove up the coast, it was progressively, oh, this is the coolest day we've had. You've brought fall with us. So we just joked that we we're blowing pumpkin spice out the windows of our car as we were going. And we were the, the Johnny Appleseed of fall up the East Coast. So you're welcome is what I'm saying. <laughs> Thank you. So uh, Raleigh was great. And we did um, house shows in Raleigh and uh, Annandale, Virginia. Uh, we had a show with the Misbehaven Maidens in DC. And there are our best, best cuddle enemies are our BFFs. And uh, we had a really fun show. And we did Brooklyn at uh, the Waypoint uh, cafe with uh, Sarah Donner and uh, Rhiannon's Lark, who are local nerd superheroines. Uh, and then we did a set in Rhode Island and worked our way up to Boston, where we performed with Sarah Donner again. So it was wonderful. We ate so many things. I think that was kind of the secondary best part of the tour. Like the best part was getting to make music and meeting all these fans. The second best part was getting to eat all the local cuisine and going, oh, so that's what that's supposed to taste like. <laughs> Straight from the source. So what is your culinary memory of Boston? I hope it wasn't Dunkin' Donuts. Oh, uh, we did have uh, Dunkin' Donuts that first day. We um, went to a pub, and I wish I could remember the name of it, but in Boston, like, Irish pubs are kind of a staple. So we went to a local one that had, like, really good reviews in terms of, like, yeah, this is a really authentic Boston pub experience and had great food, and they had a very IPA-forward beer list, and it felt like it felt like a and d tavern when we walked in and we actually joked sitting at the table, like in about 10 seconds, we are going to be recruited into somebody's campaign. We are going to be the bards. It just had that, that feel. And that was pretty great. We did get to uh, go to the honk festival when we were in Somerville. Oh, you mean the untitled goose festival? Is that what y'all are <laughs> calling it? <laughs> No, it was just too perfect a timing, though. Honk. Yeah, all those brass instruments do do sound a little goose-like after a while. It turns out um, one of my best friends, Carrie, uh, who lives in 
uh, Chicago was there with her brass band festival that uh, for that brass band festival that weekend with her brass band uh, from Chicago called uh, Clamor and Lace. And so I got to see her perform and then she came to our show and that was super cool to be able to do that. Oh, mutual fans. That's perfect. Yeah. Oh, they were super good. Um, they're all women uh, playing tubas and xylophones and saxophones and i don't even know making loud brass renditions of spice girls it was really good Ah, i love it you mentioned that you performed with sarah donner who also is amazing and i'm calling her out not because she's unique in that respect misbehaving maidens are also awesome as is everybody else you performed with but i was in the audience for your sarah donner concert and i noticed that the pdx broadsides had a song about Rosalind Franklin and a song about Settlers of Catan. <laughs> and Sarah Donner had songs about Rosalind Franklin and Settlers of Catan. So is it just sort of like a filk requirement that every band needs to have songs about those topics? Yes. Yeah. If you want to join our club, then you need to have a punch card and you get one punch uh, for every song that lines up with something in somebody else's repertoire. Uh, The Rosalind Franklin thing was actually kind of surprising because I had written this big barroom brawler of a song called uh, FWAC which is, uh, I'm sorry, gentle readers and gentle listeners, cover your ears if you're sensitive. It's fuck Watson and Crick, because I have a lot of feelings about how Rosalind Franklin got screwed. And we started talking about it online, and Sarah says, uh, I have a song about Rosalind Franklin, too. What? what? What are the odds? But Rosalind Franklin was this super inspiring uh, role model for a lot of women in STEM because you know what? She didn't get her dues, but she still made these wonderful discoveries and we can give her her recognition now. So sort of social justice in STEM, which we really love. Uh, as for Settlers of Catan, it's a great game. I'm, I'm not surprised when um, Rhiannon's Lark also did her song about Settlers of Catan called uh, Sheep for Wood, which is hilarious, and you should check it out. And we just sort of went, oh, crap. Well, we've all written the same uh, sets. Like, we've all included our songs about cephalopods and um, Catan and scientist women. It's all right. So when can I buy a themed EP that has all the same songs from all the different bands? I don't know. Oh, that's a good question. I should ask them if they want to do it. Like, this is the Rosalind Franklin Super EP. That's a good idea. I would be down for that. Uh, Noted. Granted, I already have all the individual albums, but I would buy it again. We will get new art for the EP, and you know the art is what people are really into. Well, we know, <laughs> especially with downloadable songs. I mean, you know, we're really looking at the art. <laughs> it's that little clip in the corner. Don't you? Don't you ever <laughs> enlarge it? Sometimes we do have people coming up to our booth and saying, "Oh, I recognize that that style. It's Ben Dewey. Uh, ben Dewey did the art for Trust Issues, and it's a very distinctive, like sepia toned. Uh, he does a the tragedy series and uh, Beasts of Burden for for Dark Horse, and he does all sorts of amazing artwork. And so he has a very distinctive style. 
our newest album, uh, Relatable Content, the art was done by Odd Cook of uh, Dark Horse fame. She did the Wicked and the Divine uh, 1920s issue, which is super pretty. So people will come by and go, oh, I know who that artist is. Are you guys any good? And we're like, yeah, I guess kind of. Ask our moms. They seem to like us. <laughs> And I, I was joking about the cover art. When I have music in iTunes that doesn't have cover art, it drives me nuts. It, there has to be something there. And, you know, it may as well be as good as you can make it. So you just got back from your tour. But I want to ask you about the beginning of the tour. Specifically, you all have day jobs. How do you go to management and say, I need a week or two off to go sing pirate songs and songs about Nathan Fillion taking off his pants on the other side of the country? Is that okay? It can be kind of a mix bag it's uh it is a challenge to convince people in science in particular that you having a creative outlet is good for you and so i've gotten a lot of pushback about you know you're taking time off to go do this band thing and uh don't you think that time would be better spent in the lab and you'd be surprised how much pushback we get. So sometimes I'm straightforward and I say I'm going uh I'm going to go perform with my band and I'll be out for a couple days and sometimes I prevaricate a little bit and I say mm, I'm going to like when we went to Dragon Con um I'm doing science communication panels which I was. Um I was also part of the science track while I was there and frankly my music is also a form of science communication. Uh so that's that's kind of how we we get around it. Um but I am expending a lot of my vacation time this year like my legit vacation days on going on tour and um going to different cons and that's all right. Uh that's you know that's what you do. You do what you love. I think for Holly, it was just like putting in a time off request. And Christian, he is lucky enough that his job is flexible. And they say, oh, no, if you need some time off or if you want to work from anywhere, you can because he works remotely. So it's nice for him. And I wish I could say in science that someday I feel like I'm going to get more vacation time. But I know as you go up, it only gets harder. I'm really disappointed to hear that you get pushback because so many of your songs are nerdy and are about science that I would think other scientists would appreciate that because they are your target audience. And they do appreciate it. In fact, my uh, my grad school mentor is one of our biggest fans, but he also gave me some of the most pushback because he would say things like, Jessica, your music is so brilliant. It makes me wonder like, what what energy you're putting into your music that you could be putting into your science instead. Oh my God. Does he have to be so passive aggressive? The worst, the worst. And he is a huge, he's a big fan of the music, but he never gets it right. And so it's hilarious to listen to him discuss with people who don't know the band, what our songs are about. So he'll say like, I really like this one song that they do. It's all about like Xena and, um, you know, stories. And I'm like, that's not what that song is about at all. It's, uh, he, he was describing the song, the story of me, which is about what it's like to grow up being nerdy and female. And I'm like, you totally misappointed that song entirely. Didn't you? He's like, Oh, I didn't know that's what that song was about. Well, I'm glad that you still like it. <laughs> I mean, B for effort, I guess. Yeah, I mean, B plus on the test. You're doing your thing. It's fine. 
but it it's it can be um, sort of an ego-driven thing in the sciences. Like they look down on if you have something that is outside of science, because we're all supposed to be this pure machine doing science all the time, right? And I think in in that case, a lot of scientists have outside pursuits, but we largely learn to hide them uh, in case it's looked down upon. And you feel that that is unique to that field, that you, if you were working somewhere else, you could be more open and expressive? Um, Maybe. I don't have uh, that sort of expertise or experience, but I think if I were working in a more creative field, having a creative hobby might be looked on a little bit more favorably. Yeah. Hmm. So since we are talking about your work, let's go down that path. What is it that you do exactly? I am a placentologist. That is a real job that you can have. Stay in school. Don't do drugs. Uh, I study the placenta, which is the... How much do you know about the placenta, Ken? Certainly far less than you. Okay. <laughs> well, fair. I mean, the placenta is kind of my special obsession. But uh, what do you know about the placenta? As far as I know, it is connected to the umbilical cord. And some parents either bury it or eat it when the child is born that is that is correct uh wow all right i'll unwrap all of those things uh so one <laughs> it is it is connected to the umbilical cord so the placenta is the barrier between the carrier and the fetus and it has one major job and that job is to exchange wastes and nutrients and oxygen and gases in between the mother and the fetus and two fun facts that you can take to any cocktail party. Um, don't take it to dinner parties. You don't get invited back. I know this from personal experience. But if you're at a cocktail party and you need to whip out a fun fact, um, tell them, one, that the placenta is the only temporary organ the human body ever makes. And two, every single one of us has made one because it is made by the fetus not by the mother. It is your first art project. So the placenta is a, this temporary organ. We can tell a lot about how baby is going to grow up, what sort of diseases or health issues baby might face, and what sort of health issues mom might face by looking at the placenta and different factors in it, how it grows during pregnancy. Um, yeah, it's it is an amazing organ that we often throw away or bury under a tree, which I think is really lovely, or eat, which I think is really gross and not necessary. What prompted you to study this particular aspect of OBGYN? It's a interesting story. Uh I started uh, I started research in 2002 um, as an undergrad at Minnesota State University, Moorhead, and I was studying uh, lung and breast cell cancer. And after I moved to Portland in 2006, I started at OHSU and I did a year in Fanconi anemia and I did a year in fetal neurotoxicology. And I liked all of those things, but I had trouble sort of latching on. And I uh, interviewed for a lab that was doing pathology, and they were interested in pregnancy in the kidney at that point. And it was January 2010, and we were using these little microbubbles. They're about the size of a red blood cell, and they're made out of lipids, and they ring like a bell under ultrasound. And we were running them through this pregnant mouse looking for blood flow changes in the kidney. 
And my boss said, hey, while we're in there, like, she's pregnant, why don't we move the probe over just uh, an inch or so and take a look at what's going on in the placenta. And we're able to look at what they call refill kinetics. So you can pop the bubbles open and then watch them fill again. And what we saw was a very particular pattern of blood flow filling this placenta. We said, well, that's interesting. It happens so, so quickly. What does it look like in this other model? And it looked very different um, in a model of uh, mom having high blood pressure, genetically induced high blood pressure. So we said, well, the blood flow is different in the placenta. What else is different? And that is where I started my career in the placenta was, oh, if this is happening, what's driving that? What's driving the differences in blood vessel changes? Um, what sort of genes are being expressed? Is there a difference between boys and girls? There is. Um, it's a fascinating field. And the things that we can tell about what your health outcomes are going to be for the rest of your life based on this placenta are myriad. And we're introduced, we're finding new things about what we can tell from the placenta every day. I had no idea about any of this. How come this isn't making the news? It is, ever so slowly, but how often do you actually type in placenta into your browser window? Fair. Uh, yeah, it's kind of, sometimes you'll say placenta and people roll their eyes or they go, well, I would never eat one. I don't want you to eat one. Eating one is gross. It doesn't do anything for you and it's really full of disease. Don't put it in your mouth. Uh, no, it's not full of disease. It's full of, um, it's got its own microbiota. And so you probably don't want to, you don't want to eat that. It just, it's probably not good for you. If you're really starving, if you need calories or nutrients, or if you're like a sheep in the wild and you're afraid of predators, then yeah, eat it. But we're not sheep and we have grocery stores. So we're probably okay without eating it. Like, we're good. So what is Team Placenta? Team Placenta is a hashtag on Twitter. And there are a surprising number of placentologists on Twitter. And we all keep in touch by sharing new research that's happening or stuff that's going on in our labs. And surprising, maybe, maybe some of your listeners, but um, maybe not, the overwhelming number of us using Twitter to do science communication are female, particularly on the Team Placenta hashtag. So it's also been kind of a strengthening of women in STEM to be able to share amongst ourselves. And when I see those folks at, at conferences, I can be like, hey, Team Placenta, and we've already got that bond. So this is what we do. If you're interested in learning more about current research or what life in a placenta research lab is like, you can find hashtag Team Placenta on Twitter. And you can also like uh, write me. I'm at Dame underscore DNA. And I'm always happy to take your placenta and um, OBGYN related research questions. It's great to know where to go to find that information because one of the reasons I don't see this in the news is because there's so little budget nowadays for good science reporting in mainstream media. And so you often have to go to the source like you just recommended. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to do that. There are fellowships out there if you're interested in doing science-based reporting or policy reporting. The AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Sciences, has a internship program for like learning how to do uh, communication and science, which is great. The Oregon Museum of Science and Industry is part of the Portland 
portal to the public uh, community. So I went to them and they taught me how to be a better science communicator. They have a science communication fellowship. Um, a lot of museums through the U.S. are part of Portal to the Public, and so they have they have sponsored programs to teach scientists how to be better communicators. They help you build a model, and then you go to their institutions and you do outreach several times a year. So we're trying to get better at communicating our science outward, and uh, we are putting those people who are gaining those skills into positions where then they can work directly with the media or uh, join the media themselves and report for us. It's amazing that you're not just working with placenta, but also working with the communication field and trying to bridge this gap to get this information out there. That's really important work. I, I agree. And, and thank you. I feel like if we're going to raise the public consciousness of what we're doing, it's going to take people who are willing to go out and talk about science isn't scary and science isn't for, I get a lot of, well, you're so smart. That's why you can do science. Uh -uh -uh. Science isn't for the smart. Science is for the enthusiastic. If you are excited about discovery and following the scientific process um, and using critical thinking, the scientific process is just, um, Ask a question, develop what you think is going to, to happen around that, run a little experiment, and then if it works out, great, you've, you know, supported your hypothesis. If it doesn't work out, develop a new hypothesis. And we do that about everything every day. Like, um, I would like to make a ham sandwich. This ham smells off. I think I'm going to try to eat the ham anyway because I don't think it's off yet. I got sick. The ham was off. Like th that is the scientific process in, um, you know, a kitchen setting. <laughs> but and yet there are so many areas of our lives in which we don't apply the scientific method, where we come to a conclusion and then we test it, and if it doesn't work out, we stick with the conclusion anyway. Yeah, because we're humans and fallible. Uh, <laughs> but I like to do the science communication work in part to encourage people to apply the scientific process to other areas of their life. And like, think like a scientist. It's not it's not just for people who are good at calculus. You talked about what got you into this field. What is it that you're working on now in your postdoc? Oh, it's neat stuff. Thank you for asking. So what I'm studying right now is uh, the placenta in gestational diabetes. So what happens when uh, mom has gestational diabetes, which is a condition that affects 7% of all human pregnancies, and we're seeing it being complicated by things like obesity, uh, which is on the rise in particular in the United States, and uh, Western-style diet. Um, there's a number of factors that can also uh, further impact gestational diabetes. But um, the big deal is that it can affect the offspring. So it can developmentally program the baby to be more predisposed to have diabetes and obesity and um, blood pressure and cardiovascular issues later in life. We can look at the placenta 
and see what changes are happening in there. Particularly, um, my work right now is on the mitochondria, the powerhouse of the cell, as most people remember from basic biology. But the mitochondria also release what's known as oxidative stress factors. So they can cause damage and oxidative stress leads to aging. And if you're a organ like the placenta, where your job is pretty short term, it, to accelerate the aging of the placenta is bad because it means it's not going to be able to do its job quite so well. So I'm looking at how the mitochondria function in this placenta and how we can make them function better even when uh, mom has something like gestational diabetes. Wow, that is really impressive that you're doing that. And I can see how it has significant implications for everybody's health. What I know from other people who have done postdocs is that their project usually ends not when they come to a conclusion, but when the budget runs out. That's not incorrect. <laughs> um, right now, I'm I'm considering what I want to be when I grow up. It's funny. You get a PhD and you think that you should know what the next step is. And I lucked out into getting into a research-based postdoc that was still in the placenta, but in a very uh, different sort of uh, pathological angle than what I was doing as a, a grad student. And I love research, but I also really love teaching. And you can tell that I love science communication. So it's what, how do I put all those things together into a lifelong career? That's part of what the postdoc is about as well, is figuring out what your next step is as you're also producing your uh, future body of work. What I'm hearing from you is that you prefer working with the general public as opposed to, say, in an academic environment where you can teach these subjects. Is that correct? Um, I think it's a little bit of both. I love teaching and really miss being in a classroom. I taught all the way through my, my uh, grad school experience, and I love teaching biology because Again, science is for the enthusiastic. Um, cell biology is my favorite thing to teach. And I usually taught that to upperclassmen, though. And that's where we already have a basic science understanding, but we get to really ask some interesting questions of how cells replicate and what are the different parts of plasma and what do they mean and how do they all work together? And I get to help those students develop their own questions. So they get to ask a hypothesis about an experiment and they run and completely design the experiment themselves twice during that term. That's kind of my favorite part. So I, I will work with anybody who wants to learn and I'll work with the public. I'll work with uh, an academic setting. And that's part of what I'm going through right now as a, as a postdoc. Like, How can I put all of those things together for forever so I can keep having them? One nice thing about working in education is unless you're teaching a required course like I am, then your students generally want to be there and you're working with engaged, motivated students. The nice thing about working with the public is that you might inspire somebody who didn't even know that they were interested in something. Yeah. Part of the thing I love about working with OMSI is you get such a mix of people. You get kids, you get parents, you get grandparents, you get like all sorts of different backgrounds. And sometimes the questions that they ask, you're like, I never thought to approach it that way. And it's that's the joy of doing sort of cross-collaborative uh, work as well is, oh, I never 
thought to ask that question in that way. And I like reaching outside of what's expected in order to try to develop something new. Because if you're just repeating the same experiments over and over again, that's literally the definition of insanity. So you have to find a new angle and part of working with the public is being part of that new angle. And if that new angle inspires somebody, let me ask, who was it who inspired you? Who are some of your scientific role models? Ooh, uh, Rosalind Franklin <laughs> is... Naturally. Yeah, of course. Um, I have kind of the the wall of psychom superheroes, Carl Sagan, um, Neil deGrasse Tyson to a lesser extent, although he needs to talk about his science and not other people's science. <laughs> Stay in your lane. I am very inspired by uh, my first two mentors at uh, Minnesota State University Moorhead, Dr. Provost and Dr. Waller, who were had this idea that they would collaborate together on a cancer model. And they ended up opening a lab up to undergraduates who wanted to experience science and had this great big lab before cures were a thing. Cures are um, cumulative undergraduate research experiences, and they're kind of the wave of the future, uh, allowing more students to have actual laboratory experience. And they were running that way back in 2002 by saying, come into our lab, get some research experience. And if you like it, we'll help you build a project. And I stayed with them for four years because they really helped foster my understanding and uh, love of, of science and of research. So who else is really inspiring me? I just read Lab Girl by Hope Jarin, which was great. And she definitely has inspired a lot of uh, women in STEM to keep exploring even when they get pushback. And her work in botany is really interesting. Uh, I have a lot of mentors through the Society of Reproductive Investigation, especially Dr. Helen Jones at Cincinnati Children's, and she's very frank and honest and inspires me every day to just keep going even when the man wants to keep you down. Um, she's great. So I have a lot of, of great local mentors as well as like historical role models to follow, which is pretty great. That's wonderful. I'll include links in the show notes to as many of those resources as I can think of. So we've talked about two things broadly in this podcast. We've talked about your music with the PDX Broadsides, and we've talked, of course, about your work with the placenta. How do those two interact? Not just how do they bounce against each other when you need to go on tour and take vacation time, but are there ways in which there's synergy between them? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think that some of the things I learn about science and science history absolutely informs my music. And I think music helps me recharge my my brain. You need those two sort of sides of your brain to work together to be a whole and functioning person. So having my right side brain stimulated by music and songwriting and my left side brain um, inspired by uh science and an academic work, being able to recharge one side by leaning on the other has worked out really well for me. I feel I came back from tour feeling really refreshed and ready to go back into the lab. And here in about a month or so, I'll probably be ready to do a whole lot of songwriting again. <laughs> I have not written a placenta song yet. That is a question I get an awful lot. 
it's not entirely true. I did write a placenta sea shanty, but it's really, really bad. And <laughs> no, you can't hear it. And so uh, I am working on, um, I call it my three minute rock opera about the placenta. I had planned to present it as part of, they have a competition every year called the three minute thesis competition. And I was like, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to write three minutes about the placenta. It's going to be awesome. And the year I was I thought I was ready to present it. They changed the rules of the competition. So to say no music, no props, no nothing, like you get one slide and that's it. I was like, are you kidding me? I can't sing about this anymore. So I'm still working on it on the side. One day I will present it as uh, my, my three minute thesis rebuttal, my rock opera about the placenta. And this will be a solo work or the PDX broadsides will be singing it. I have no idea. I, I hope the broadsides will want to sing it. I joke every now and again that I'm going to make my solo project any day now from the songs that they don't like. But I, to be honest, I really love making music with the two of them. So I think if I wrote a placenta opera, they'd be into it. And they wouldn't be the only ones. The world needs more placenta music. I think that might be a new, uh, a new field of exploration. But you know, the chances are very good that by the time I release a placenta song, Sarah Donner will have also released a placenta <laughs> song. Well, then you can do a placenta EP and I would buy it. Me too. <laughs> wow. So we have covered so much in the last hour, so many different aspects of your multiple fields of work. Is there anything we didn't talk about that you wish we had? Oh my goodness. Um, I could talk for hours about the placenta. <laughs> we could we could go on and on about how much I'm excited about uh, science literacy and uh, research. Anything I wish that we had discussed. Um, I guess one of the most powerful things about being on the road was getting to perform with other bands um, in their own cities. And we also had the joy of performing with uh, all women on that tour. Getting to express yourself as a woman in um, in music, in especially a nerdy sort of sphere, has been really illuminating. And getting to share that experience with uh, other women was really powerful. And I'm really grateful for that experience. Was that by design that all your guest performers were women? I think a lot of the nerdy performers who have reached out to us and made the strongest bonds with us over time have been women. And I feel like that's the revolution of nerd music, right? There's all these really strong female and non-binary voices raising up to talk like talk about vulnerability and talk about the things that we are experiencing and feeling. And I, I really love that. You're right, that even though there are a variety of genders performing in these fields, the ones that we've been talking about, PDX Broadsides, Sarah Donner, The Misbehaving Maidens, but also others like Molly Lewis and The Double Clicks, the ones that come to mind first and foremost for me, whether it's from listening to to their music online or backing their Kickstarters or their Patreons or going to their concerts. They're not straight white cisgendered men, which isn't to say they're not out there, but the ones that occupy my vision, and maybe that's just unique to me, I don't know, are women and non-binary. Well, I love that they are the ones that come to mind first for you because they're, they're some of the, the folks making, I think, the most uh, relevant, like, 
relatable music out there right now. Um, and that's not to say that there are, are tons of uh, cis white men who are making great uh, nerd music as well. Uh, I'm, first one that comes to mind is Mega Thruster. They're based here in Portland. Shubzilla and Bill Beats out of uh, Seattle. Um, they're both really good. And Bill Beats is the, the hardest working nerd beat maker in, in show business. MC Lars, he's great too. Uh, but I really like we have found kind of a nerd music sisterhood in a way we call juliana finch our label sister and uh lucia fasano is also our label sister because we're all signed to uh double clicks records and um we have developed some really close bonds over time and it was such an honor to get to perform with so many of them uh while we were on tour and share not just our music but we also share our experiences and they are amongst some of my closest friends well that's wonderful i'm glad that you have that community and that the community exists for the rest of us to enjoy as well we'll keep making nerd music and weird noises with our mouths as long as people are willing to put up with us. So I, I love writing the songs that are, are relevant to where I am and where what I'm feeling, and I hope that um, they'll continue to resonate for years to come. Oh, that's wonderful. Can you remind our listeners, I'm going to include links to all the other performers in the show notes, but can you remind our listeners where to find you and the PDX Broadsides online? Yeah, I'd be delighted. So I'm Dr. Jessica Hebert. You can find me on Twitter at Dame underscore DNA. Um, if you want to find the PDX Broadsides, we're on Facebook, Twitter at PDX Broadsides, Instagram, and also PDXBroadsides.com. Wonderful. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Jessica. It's been a pleasure to chat with you. Ken, thank you so much. And I would love to chat with you further. And um, it, it's been a, an honor to get to share my science and my music and the things that really drive my life. This has been Polygamer, a GameBits production. Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback at polygamer.net. I don't think I'm doing or saying anything extraordinary that if it ended up on the internet, I'd be like, ah, damn it, because I've done worse on the internet. <laughs> Such as? Nope.